The text of the sermon is from the book of Nehemiah, and I need to help you find where that is, I'm afraid, I think. Nehemiah is a neighbor to Job. If you can find Job and take a left, you can find it. So I'll give you a little time to find Job. <laughs> it's Job and Psalms and Proverbs. So it's right in the center of the Bible. And when you go back to the left, you'll find Nehemiah. And I want you to turn to chapter 9. The material for this sermon is really the two chapters, 9 and 10. But it's not, time will not allow us to read all of the material that's there. So I want to read verse 38 of chapter 9, I'd like for you to, to uh, just keep your Bible open because we're going to refer to it in an expository way as we make our way through this New Year sermon. Chapter 9 and verse 38, now because of all of this, now what he's saying, uh, all of this is what he has written in chapter 9. And what chapter 9 is, is a review of the history of Israel, God's dealing with his people. And he just starts from the very beginning of God's uh, blessing upon that great nation and progresses all the way through their history up to that point in time. And he says, now, because of all of this, what God has done, we're making an agreement in writing. And on the sealed document are the names of our leaders, our Levites, and our priests. We all begin today with something in common with everybody else in the world. Obviously, that's not geographical because not everybody lives in the same place. And it is not sociological because we don't all have the same uh, opportunities and surroundings, environments and friends. It is not physical because we were not all born with, with uh, the same color of skin or hair or eyes. It's not financial because some are wealthy and some are poor. So what is it that we all began with at the beginning of this day that everybody has the same amount of in, in this day? Well, the answer to that is time. We all began with the same amount of time. The President of the United States doesn't have 25 hours in which to live his life and to do his work he doesn't have 13 hours in a 12-hour day to do what he needs to do, and we have 12. We all have the same amount of time. Time is an, is an ingredient that is given to us in the same amount. So the big question this morning is not, do I have enough time to do what I need to do? The big question is, how can I invest my time so that I can receive the best dividend from it? How can I use the time that I have in the right way? It's a matter, really, of the maintenance of priorities. 
an industrialist by the name of Dodd was asked, what is the hardest thing that you have found to get people to do? He said, he answered quickly, the hardest thing I found getting people to do was, was twofold. One was to get them to think, and the second was to get them to do things in the order of their importance. Now what we have in chapter nine is this, God's people doing some deep thinking. They're reflecting upon their past. There's some deep meditation here, and they're considering what God has done for them, what God has been and is, what their lives have been and are, and what they should be doing for God. On the basis of that, they say, we're going to make some promises to God. We're going to make some resolutions. We've made some decisions that we're going to put out in writing. We're going to sign our name to, those, to that resolution, and we're going to seal it to authenticate it. Now, on the basis of what God has done for us as we reflect upon His history, upon our life in the past, and on the basis of what we understand about what God wants of us, we're going to make these promises, these resolutions, and we're going to seal them to authenticate them. And it's serious business for them. As a matter of fact, if you look at verse 38, they say we're going to make this promise, 38 of chapter 10, and if we don't keep the promise, God, let God curse us. Now, I don't know too many people this morning who are ready to make some agreements with God and make this kind of commitment that if I don't follow through on this promise, let God curse me. It's interesting that in verse 38, the word for oath is the word to seven oneself, not sever, but seven, S-E-V-E-N, and it refers to those things that they did in ritual that... that attends to or relates to the promises. Now, they didn't just shake hands. In that Jewish economy in the past, they did seven things. They went through seven rituals to authenticate or to remind them of the sacredness of these vows they were making to God. It is, what it's all saying is that what they're telling God is terribly serious. Now, I think that might be our greatest problem. I think if we, had num if we had one fatal flaw, the fatal flaw is that we do not take God seriously enough. I mean, we make promises to God we never intend to keep. We've made resolutions to the Lord that we've forgotten two weeks later. I mean, we've made commitments and promises that are so shallow we've not, we've not kept them. We don't even remember what we've promised. Somebody asked Mark Twain if it was hard to quit smoking. He said, no, nah, man, it's not hard to quit smoking. I've done it lots of times. It's not hard to make a promise to God. The guy called me on the telephone Friday, and he said, I'm writing in the newspaper Sunday um, some resolutions that people in the city are making. He said, what resolutions are you making? I, you know, I mean, it's easy to make a resolution. We've made a bunch of them, and we've made some promises to God that we've not kept. We don't take Him seriously enough. If you want to know how serious this is, you read the fifth chapter of Ecclesiastes, and the writer says it's better never to make an oath to God than to make an oath and not keep it. Now, who signed this agreement? 
Well, in chapter 38, he tells us who signed the agreement. There were 84 names on this parchment. 22, uh, verse, 22 priests signed their names, verses 1 through 8. Verses 9, 9 through 13, there were 17 Levites. And verses 10 through 27, there were 44 leaders of households. That is, 44 husbands or fathers. Now, when you consider the fact that there was this entire nation of millions of people, there were 84 people who were saying, I'm going to make these promises to God and I'll be cursed if I don't keep them. And they had two things in common. The first thing they had in common was they had knowledge. That is, they knew what God had done for them and what God demanded or required of them. And secondly, they were separate from the people of the land. They were, they were different. They were unique. They were distinctive from the people of the land. And they made the commitment, drove it in the ground as a stake, as a monument to remind them. And what all of this says, the heart of this is, that these people were saying, I'm going to be distinct. I'm not going to be concerned about conformity. I don't care if I'm the only one on my block, in my class, in my group of people. I'm going to be different from the people of the land. I'm going to be unique and distinct. And the philosophy of the world will not be my philosophy any longer. I want to ask you this morning, are you ready to sign that kind of an agreement? Now there's some things about this promise they made that, that, that is worthy of some consideration. First, what is the promise of the document? Verse 29b tells us in general terms, this is the promise of the document. Chapter 10, verse 29b. This is what they're saying I'm going to do. I'm going to live my life. I'm going to order my life after the Word of God. I don't care if nobody else does it. I don't care if it's in vogue. I don't care if it's, if it's what Rome is doing or not. I'm going to find what God's will is for my life. I'm going to live my life according to the Word of God. And it's a picture of one taking a road map and he's headed to the northeast. He's going to New England. So he gets his road map or his um, uh, automobile club atlas and, and finds out the best route to the, to, the, to the New England states. And he puts that map beside him on the seat of the, auto, uh, seat of the car. And he follows that map as he travels. Now, there'll be road changes and, 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 and road, uh, the numbers will change on the highways. So he follows that map on the seat beside him. And every turn he makes in the route on the way to the New England states, he makes after his guide, after the map on the seat beside him, he alters the course of his life according to the route to the map. Now, what these people are saying is this. I'm going to find what God's will is for me as a believer. I'm going to discover what God's word says for my life and I'm going to put that beside me and I'm going to follow that, altering my life at every turn to the will and the word of God. Anybody here willing to sign that note, that, that agreement? This is an age of conformity. And most of us live our lives on the basis of fads and trends. We do what the Romans do, what's acceptable, how to be a part of the herd, 
how to be accepted among my peers. That's the way we alter our life. We're just kind of like chips on the stream. We just kind of follow what everybody else is doing. Isn't that, isn't that true? A sociologist by the name of Berinda wanted to illustrate it. And so she took a chart with some vertical lines on this chart and they were all almost the same length. They were just minutely, infinitesimally different as far as length was concerned. But they were all different in length. And she divided 10 groups of people into 10, groups of 10, 10 groups with 10 people in it. And she gave to the nine, to nine of those uh, groups, she told the longest, what was the longest line, and she told what was the next longest line. They were all listed A, B, C, D, E, F, whatever. And she said, when we go back in there, there's going to be one group that does not have privy to this information, and I want you to vote for the second longest line, every one of you. Regardless of which you believe is the longest, you vote for the second longest. And so they got in this group, and, and Ruth Berenda, in illustrating this, said 75% of the group that did not have privy to that information were, were about to vote for the longest line, correct one, but when they saw everybody else voting for the second longest line, they joined them. They voted for them. Now, you say that's a pretty hokey illustration. Now, in much more relevant terms, that's the way you and I live our lives. And we come to this with this kind of a rationale. Well, there's such a thin line of difference anyway between good and evil, between right and wrong, between God's way and the world's way. There's such a thin line of difference. I'm just going to cast my lots with a majority. Not these people. Eighty-four of them said, regardless, if I'm the only one doing it, I'm going to alter my life according to the Word of God. Pretty good resolution. And then there were some specific areas in which that, that promise was to be carried out. Three specific areas. I want you to follow them with me. They made a promise with regard to the home. Now if you'll look in chapter 10, verse 30, it says this. And that we will not give our daughters to the people of the land or take their daughters for our sons. Now what that says is this. We're going to maintain a distinctiveness about our home life. Our homes are going to be different. We're going to have a uniqueness about our home so that when the world looks upon it, or the people of the land, they'll be able to see that home is different. It has a quality about it that is unique. You ready to sign that document, young people? Are you ready to make a commitment that your date life will be different? What you do, where you go is going to be different from the people of the land, from the conformity. Are you decide, have you decided with regard to the people you're going to marry? I'm going to set some standards. We're go, I'm going to find somebody that I love and I'll fall in love with who has the same value level of system that I have. Are you ready to make that kind of commitment? What about husbands, leaders of homes, and fathers? 
Now, I never preach a sermon when I don't preach that sermon to myself, especially is that true when I talk about the home. I want to give you five ways this morning. I want you to jot them down in which you as a head of a house, the head of the household, can make your home distinctive, different, unique. Eleanor Roosevelt once said that the ability to communicate love is an education. I mean, you have to learn how to do that. Who is there here that would not like to know how to be a better lover in the purest sense of the word? I think there are five things that you and I can do that enable us to, to, to make our homes unique. The first is this, learn how to listen. Is there anything that makes us feel more worthwhile than to have somebody to listen to us? We have all felt the rejection that comes when our fears and frustrations, our, our discoveries and our thoughts are treated as, they, as if they didn't matter, just disregarded. You know what I'm saying to, to the person I presume to love when I listen to them, when I put my mind in gear to listen to them? You know what I'm saying to that person I presume to love? I'm saying to them, I'm willing to open up my life to you. Learn to listen. Second, learn to touch. Now I know there are enough people who have perverted, frankly, abused at least, this notion of touching so that it has jaundiced our thinking concerning it, but there still is a right place and a right time for the right kind of touching. Touching is therapeutic. It conveys our emotions in profound ways. I can still feel the touch of my father as he would tug at my necktie, getting me ready for Sunday school as a kid. Man, that sucker was tight. Now I wear him all the time, but I just, you know, he'd tighten that baby up and where I could hardly swallow, you know, and I, I, I can still feel my dad tugging at my tie, getting me ready for Sunday school, or my mama holding my head so she could try to get this cowlick, do something with this cowlick. It's right there that I've lived with for all my life. The hug of a brother, the embrace of a lover, the, the tiny infant's finger entwined around yours as the, as the morning feeding progresses, all say it without saying words. Learn to touch. Third, learn to let go. The old song says, let me go, let me go, let me go, lover. That's, that's pretty good advice. In fact, we increase our capacity to love when we encourage the ones we love to occasions of independence. Gibran was right when he said, let there be spaces in our togetherness. Learn to let go. Fourth, learn to tell. Tell that person you love, you love them. How long has it been? Young people, how long has it been since you've told mother and dad you love them? Now they'll faint, but you can, get, you can revive them. If you tell, how long has it been since you've said I love you? The cartoon has the, father, has the husband saying to his wife, of course you're my Valentine, Shirley. I've just stopped talking about it. Well, don't. Oliver Cromwell was right when he said, if they, whoever they are, knew they had only five minutes to say what they wanted to say, 
Every telephone booth in America would be occupied and they'd be dialing and mumbling the words, I love you. Why wait until you just have five minutes to do that? Fifth, learn to empathize. When somebody really loves somebody, he takes the spotlight off of himself. Real loving is when somebody else's happiness and welfare is as important as your own. Now, are you willing, are you, are you willing to sign the document, I'm going to be different as a husband, as a father, as a child, as a young person. My home is going to be different in the year to come. There's a second place where the promise had effect. It was in society. In society, we're going to have a distinctiveness about us. And the implication, one implication is that I'm not going to work on Sunday, on the Lord's Day, on the Sabbath Day. It's implied there in verse 31. In fact, it's taught there. I'm not going to interchange in the transactions that take place in the business community if that happens on the Lord's Day, on the Sabbath Day. I'm going to keep that day distinctive. And he's saying out there in the social world, in the, in the marketplace, I'm going to have a godly quality of uniqueness about me. Nobody's going to point at me and say you can't trust him. Nobody's going to look at me as a businessman and say he'll do a number on you. You better watch him. I'm going to have the quality of God about me. If I'm told to go to work at a certain time, I'm going to be punctual. If I'm expected to give a day's work, I'm going to give it. If I have four days a month off, I'm going to take four, not five. If I'm expected to be here, I'm going to be there. If I'm expected to leave something, I'm not going to take it. I'm going to be honest in my dealings. That's what he's saying. You ready to sign the document? Keith Miller in his book, Taste a New Wine, says this, and I quote, it's amazing how faithful and sincere folks can be in worship and in church matters and how totally pagan they can be in the day-by-day -day guts of employment, office, and business. End of quote. Amen to that. I'm not going to just have the distinctiveness of being a churchman going to church on Sunday, when they look at me out there in the world or in my employment or in the social strata where I live, they're going to know that I have a quality of God about my life. Ready to sign the document? Answering softly to turn away wrath. Praying for those who despitefully use you. Overcoming evil with good, I'll do it giving to the needs of others to the point of sacrifice, toning down my desire for that for which I have enough already, I'm going to be God's people. Now it seems to me that, that the problem that confronts the New Testament church, not just in 1986, the problem that confronts the church from time immemorial has been that we out in the marketplace, in the secular world, out there in where the rest of the world is, we are not uniquely God's. I'll be different. There is a third place 
where this promise has its impact. It is in the church. Now, if you'll begin at verse 32 and read verse through verse 39, you'll find the statement in the house of the Lord nine times. Must be pretty important. I'm going to have a distinctiveness in the house of the Lord. And a term that he uses over and over is, I'm going to bring my first fruits to the house of the Lord. My first fruits to the house of the Lord. And, and then he talks about the tithe. I'm bringing the tithe to the house of the Lord. And he comes to verse 39 and he says this and he nails it home like a, like a shot to the abdomen. I'm not going to neglect the house of the Lord. Now some of you have and some of you are. Let me ask a deep question this morning. It gets right down hoeing up next to the corn. If this work, if God's work depended on you, if God's ministry and the function and ministry of this church and this house depended upon you, what would it be like? Now you and I are facing some tremendous challenges in the life of this church in the future. We have extended ourselves in time and in financial responsibility. It is going to require of each of us, each of us, a new commitment to the house of the Lord, to the function of the work of God, to the ministry of the church. And I'm going to sign my name to an agreement that I'm going to give first priority to the work of God. That's going to mean more to me than anything else. I like Stan's prayer this morning. His prayer was that in this new year we'd look to a new commitment to the church, to the house of God, to the ministry of Christ, to the work of God in the world. Now I see four applications from this sermon that I'm through. First application, serious thought precedes any significant change. Let me tell you something. The new year does not make a new man. If you're going to step into 1986 and with a new fresh year think you're going to be different and new, you're, you're, you're mistaken. The new year doesn't make the new man. The new man makes the new year. And what I'm calling of us, myself and of you, is this, that we move out of our apathy and indifference to some serious consideration. And after serious consideration, we make changes that are essential. Second application. Written plans confirm right priorities. After you've decided this is what I'm going to do, write it out. Written plans Confirm right priorities. Third, are you listening? Loss of distinction and conformity to the world go hand in hand. Loss of distinction and conformity to the world go hand in hand. 
Now, this is what I'm saying. If you conform to every trend and every fad, you have lost your distinctiveness as a believer, as a Christian. You cannot be like the world and have effectiveness as a Christian. You can't do it like the world does it and have effectiveness as a Christian, whatever it is. You can't talk like the world talks. You can't go where the world goes. You can't be what the world is and have effectiveness as a Christian. You've lost that effectiveness. You're on the shelf. Fourth application. Our effectiveness for Christ will be determined in large measure by the fads we have resisted and the trends which we have followed. Our effectiveness for Christ will be determined in large measure by the fads we have resisted and the trends we have followed. Now this is the heart of what chapter 9 and chapter 10 appeals or says. I'm going in the, in the new beginning. They had just come back to the city of Jerusalem, rebuilt the walls. It was a brand new place to start. I'm going to be uniquely, distinctively the Lord's. I may be the only one in my classroom. I may be the only one in my peer group. I may be the only one on my block. I may lose my business, but I am going to be uniquely, distinctively God's people. I'm going to ask you to make that same commitment this morning. In my home, in my world, in my church, I'm going to be what God wants me to be. I gave this invitation in the early service. A fine young man, one of the leaders of our community, came forward. This is all he said. It's all that's necessary to say. He said, I'm ready to sign that agreement. Let's pray together. Father, we come to the challenge of a new beginning, challenge that is as deep as your word is, as your plans are, your dreams for us. I pray that there'll be some of us who will make some decisions with regard to the home, to the world, to the church, that will set us apart as being your people in the unique, distinctive sense that you desire special and holy and separated, effective and powerful, fruitful. God, give us the knowledge of the positive steps we need to take today because I pray in Jesus' name. Now, in the spirit of prayer, we have these three invitations. The first invitation is for people to receive Christ as their personal Savior. There is a sense in which that is a, the most radical step 
a person can ever take. He is repenting of the old life to come to the new, the brand new. The second invitation is for that promise, that depth of commitment with which this passage deals. The third invitation is for folks to place their life in the ministry of the church that requires of them time and energy and love and support. Would you be willing to do it? We'll ask you to come publicly because Jesus called in public His followers. And we'll do it right now while we stand to sing.